Thank you for joining us today as we continue in our series with Joseph. Before we do, just a few words about the great time we had this past Sunday. I know some of you, for whatever needs in your life, or if you're traveling or just can't get out or need to get out, you can watch from home. We're blessed that you are to be able to do that. That's why we're doing this here tonight. But for those that were there, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. If you're able to make it out this Sunday, it's Graduate Sunday And because our graduates have just been deprived of being able to walk across the stage in their high schools or universities, we're going to honor them this Sunday. So if you can be out, it's going to be a special service where we're going to have them march in, call their names. It was just a great time to celebrate as a church because whether you've taught them, whether you've been a part of their lives here in a personal way or indirectly through your giving of your resources You've been a part of their lives, and we want to celebrate that because we have raised up a generation of some really strong, strong Christians. So it's going to be a blessing. Even if you listen to this word before the service or later, you can still come and be part of uh, the fellowship out here. We had a great time. Just a reminder to some of the folks, I think we'll see more umbrellas out there today, and that's I mean, on, Saturday, on Sunday, and that's perfectly fine. Bring those, bring your ball caps. The sound was great. There's shaded places to go, but if you want to get a little bit of sun, we're not charging you for the vitamin D. So we look forward to that. Church, thank you once again for your continual support of the ministries of this church. Even though we are not meeting in here together in this room, We are beginning to meet outside. We're looking forward to getting back in here at a future date and have things we're looking at for that week to week, day to day. But blessed for what God is doing. The ministry continues. Lives are being touched. Thank you for caring about the members of your life journey groups and members of this place. It means the world to me and more importantly to the Lord Jesus Christ as you continue to minister to one another. It's special. This is truly a special, special place. Today, as we go back into our series with Joseph, some important things to look at today I think you'll find are quite integral to the meaning of life. Because when you get down to the basics, when you strip it all away, when people are having some of the issues that arise when we have some difficult seasons of life like we're in right now, you get back to the basic questions. Who am I? Where am I going? What is life about? So I'm glad today, as Christians watching and listening to a message today, we're going to look at some fundamental issues in life. Joseph is a special, special person because of his relationship to God. Today's motif has a lot to do with we live our lives for God. We give our lives for God. And the word give can mean literally give as far as the ultimate sacrifice and martyrdom or give day to day. We live our lives for God. We give our lives to God. Let's pick up in, in Genesis 42, verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring back to you. And so entrust him to my care. and I will bring him back. Of course, you know this passage is relating to the fact that Jacob does not want, he does not want to send the younger son to go to Egypt. He's already lost Joseph. He doesn't want to lose another son. And Reuben, Reuben's a special person. 
And we're going to see as we look at this passage that once again, Reuben is the tender-hearted brother. Reuben is the one, if you remember back to Genesis 37, that hears about the plans his brothers are going to make. And he thought, we can't do this to our brother. And he warns the brothers about doing it. And he's the one that suggests, let's put him in the cistern with the idea as recorded in Genesis 37, that Reuben was going to go later to rescue Joseph and bring him back to Jacob. Reuben is the tender-hearted brother. Reuben is the one that right here, after all this happened over 20 years before, his heart is still tender. He's the one that says to his father, if I don't bring, if I don't bring our brother back, I'll let you kill both of my sons. Reuben offers everything. You see in an Old Testament economy, having sons to carry on your name meant everything. And Reuben is saying to Jacob, dad, I'm going to give you everything. I will lose my namesakes. I will cut off my name from the forever because you can have my sons if I don't do it. That's how sincere he was and how much he loved his father and how much he loved his brothers. And more importantly, how much he loved God. You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Wow. There's something about tender-hearted people. And in our world today, some of you have grown up in experiences where maybe you didn't experience someone that had that kind of a tender heart. But it ought to be an experience, tender-heartedness ought to be experienced inside of all the places that claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be tender-hearted, how important it is for the body of Christ. And I want to say this to you. So many of you exhibit that. I watch that heart of mercy. I watch that heart of care reaching out to one another. We do have some folks that are in some very difficult positions in life some that have been hospitalized, some that have issues of memory, dementia, Alzheimer's, some have physical things going on. It's wonderful to see the synergy of the church touching lives. And it comes from being tenderhearted. The Word of God talks about being tenderhearted. Let's look at a passage right here. In Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God gave you. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the word compassionate. It's used spangnos in Greek. It has in its idea this dynamic of having a heart that is sensitive. It actually is translated. You see the word compassionate that's used in Ephesians, but it's actually translated in in King James, and it's translated even in the Greek Um, wooden translation as tender-hearted. It's a combination of a couple of words. And it means to have the kind of heart that's a heart like Reuben, a heart that heard when wrong was going to be perpetrated on their brother. He's the one that stands up and says, no, we can't do this. You see, a tender heart will give you a courageous heart because you'll stand up for what is right. And that's why the Word of God tells us in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and tender-hearted to one another. It's not a suggestion. It is a command for the New Testament church. And you will find that when you attend a local church, 
that has tender-hearted people that you will be cared for. You'll have people like Reuben that will stick up for you and stand up for you, that will hear those times of need. And they'll, when they say they're going to pray for you, they will pray for you. And you will hurt with those who hurt because tender-hearted people have an empathic heart that can be touched in a wonderful way by the Holy Spirit telling them, you need to minister here. In 1 Peter 3.8, the Word of God reemphasizes what we just talked about. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Same word found in Ephesians, and it means tenderhearted. Same exact Greek word. And interestingly, two people, Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, and of course, 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, two people that were known as pretty out there kind of people. But God, through the Holy Spirit, worked on their heart to give them tender hearts, to work on them. We're all working on things, aren't we? Sometimes it's easy to run to the dynamic of immediate justice and how do we take care of this? But it has to always be mitigated with the idea of having a tender heart. And there's times, just so we don't misunderstand this, sometimes love has to be tough love because tough love is tenderhearted because it goes to the good of the person, something that they need. It's not just placating someone or telling someone what they need to hear. It's loving them enough to tell them what they need to hear. So many times that doesn't happen. The Word of God wants us to be compassionate, tender-hearted. And I don't want to miss the fact when we're going through this passage in Genesis for all these weeks, looking at the life of Joseph, to miss some of these moments, to see how the moments make up the hours, and the hours make up the days, and the days make up all that took place in the life of Joseph. Joseph did have, did have an advocate. There was someone there who can stand up and say that he did the right thing in the midst of that, and sometimes that means you have to stand against the crowd. And I'm glad we've got people that worship here that are willing to stand up against the crowd and say, no, this is what we need to do. I'm blessed for that. Thank you for having a heart like that. Well, as we continue to go forward, we can see some of the residual damage that happened to Jacob, the father of all these brothers. But Jacob said in verse 38 of chapter 42, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Jacob, once again, after all these years, is still brokenhearted over the, the supposed loss of his son, Joseph. But there's some real interesting things that come from what he is saying. Once again, we live our lives for God. We give our lives for God. Jacob doesn't realize at this point that in the weakness of faith and ignorance, he mistakenly believed the circumstances before him were against him, when in actuality, they were really for him. 
He's thinking there can be no worse thing than sending his youngest son now to go and make this trip to Egypt when in actuality, God has worked this out where it can be the best thing for him. Jacob can't see the fact that he'll be provided with land. He'll be provided with pasture. He'll be provided with the best of Egypt. He doesn't see it yet. All he can see through the eyes of grief was that these are the worst circumstances possible. Let me ask you, church, when things are going on in life, it's so hard. When you're feeling the pain, physical pain, emotional pain, it's very hard to see the future and see a plan. It's very hard to pick out something in that and say, where is God in the midst of this? And I'm sure Jacob and thinking how unjust this is that now he has to send another, a son of Rachel, his son that he loved. How unjust is this? But God had already worked it out. And he worked it out for the point to where what was happening was really for his benefit. It takes eyes of faith to see that. I know that, and I'm aware of that as a citizen of the world. But it's important that we see it. You see, we see the same dynamic in Scripture where many times it looks like, where was God in the midst of that? I'm sure Jacob at this time was wondering, where is God in the midst of this? Are you kidding me? I send my boys to go get food in Egypt, and they come back with one less of my sons, and now they want my youngest one there. Where is God? I think there's times in all of our lives we can have that propensity that drives us to say, God, where were you in the midst of this? God is there. If you're a child of God, God is there for you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. We talked about that last week, and it's true. And you see, it's practical, but yet it's theological because it's true and it's eternal. I want you to see someone and in Scripture, in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book of the early history of the New Testament church. What was taking place? It's how we understand something about the days and times of the early church. What were they doing? In Acts chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Stay with me, it's important. The Word of God says in Acts 7, verses 9 and 10, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. Interestingly, just pause for a moment. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, still referencing Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Just taking that right out of Scripture, and saying it to you right now, you may have forgotten who's saying those words. You may have forgotten because I've just brought that up. I wonder, is that the Apostle Peter? Who's saying that? I'll tell you who's saying that. Someone by the name of Stephen is saying that. And this particular passage in Acts chapter 7, by the way, is the longest sermon slash speech in a book that is filled with speeches, the book of Acts, the early church, Peter's great sermon, all that. It is the longest one in the history of this early church that we have. Stephen's right there. Mind you, before Stephen ever made that speech, he was called to be a servant. 
Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Someone that was called to wait on tables, someone that was called that the church saw was filled with the Spirit and wait on tables, he was a servant first. I love that. Oh, it brings up this question. Who voiced these words? Stephen did. Stephen believed that God was with Joseph, and Stephen believed that God was with him. And Stephen's final words show how much he'd become like Jesus in just a short time. It's pretty incredible. When you finish watching this message, go back and read Acts chapter 7. You'll find so many wonderful things that he brings into this, and it is lengthy. It's wonderful to read it and see it. I want to say this to you. We live our lives for God. We give our lives for God. And I can't help but think that some people would think that Stephen's life was a tragic waste, great man like that. And I also can't help but think when Stephen is voicing these words before the adversaries that already had crucified Jesus, he was speaking his own death sentence, and I believe he knew it. He was speaking his own death sentence. He knew it. These are the people who were persecuting the church. These are the people who hated Jesus. And he has the boldness to be able to share it. Was it a waste of life? Should he have compromised? Stephen didn't compromise. Don't make the mistake about Stephen. His death was not a tragic waste of life. In fact, I love the fact that in his final words in that message, he cites Joseph's whole situation and how God took care of him. Isn't it ironic that some people might say, yeah, look, God rescued Joseph, but he sure didn't rescue Stephen. I want to say this to you. Who can stand on your shoulders? Have you lived a life that's worthy enough you can say, you know what, there's some folks that could stand on my shoulders. God used me to blaze some trails. Because I want to say this. Stephen's death had a profound effect on Saul and millions of others over the years, just like Joseph. God did rescue Stephen. He rescued his testimony. He rescued his words. And how many passages of that length, the longest speech slash sermon in the book of Acts that still exists today, for millions upon millions of people to read, it still exists today. How many people can you cite and say they have a speech like that that still exists today? Stephen's right at the top of that list. His death had a profound effect on the life of Saul, who's later to become Paul, because it said they put their coats at the feet of Saul as he watched this. And he saw and heard the testimony that Stephen had said, how Christ was crucified, raised from the dead. He gives this beautiful treatise about Christ, about the the word of God, and Saul heard it all. And I want to say this. Saul had to stand on the, the shoulders of Stephen even though it looked like his life was tragically lost at a young age, short time into church history, but it wasn't. Stephen knew. He knew he was speaking his death sentence into existence. He knew these words were words that they would find blasphemous, words they would find were insulting. And yes, 
They chose to stone him to death. But remember something. In that same chapter, we find Stephen says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Standing. Not seated. Standing. The Word of God tells when we honor God's Word, when we're faithful to God's Word, No matter what happens to us, it's not a waste of life. God has perpetuated his message through this man for thousands of years now, almost a couple of thousand years. And it's interesting that Stephen, when he cites the life of Joseph, says that God rescued him from all that. And he put him in charge of the palace. And it wasn't, but just probably moments after Stephen said those words, that he entered a palace with the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Stephen got rescued. You see, we measure life so many times in weeks and days and years, but God doesn't measure it that way. He measures it in faithfulness. He measures it in such a way that sometimes we can miss what Jacob was missing. Something was really for him. Stephen couldn't, what else could Stephen have done to make his testimony, his life count for any more than what we see counting for right here in Acts chapter 7? We see him chosen as a, one of the first to serve tables, and we see him as the first martyr. And we don't know how many others were inspired by what happened to him. We don't know back in the early church how that went out in, in, in testimony, and it still inspires to this very day that God gives us this message of truth. Dear friend, we live our lives for God. We give our lives for God. And whether that's one more day or a hundred more years, for every believer that stands true. And at this point, as we're looking in the book of Genesis, we find that Jacob has kind of hit a wall. He does not want to release one more son. He's had enough pain. Some of you said, I don't know if I can bear any more pain. I get it. I've lived long enough to understand that. And I've not suffered like some, but I understand some about suffering and hurt and pain, physical, emotional pain. God's in the midst of it. God is still there. Don't mistake some of the things that are even going on that God can't act in it. God can. He acted for Joseph. And he acted for Stephen. Both of their testimonies continue to live on. And here's the thing. This book, the Bible tells me, the word of God will live forever. Joseph's words, Stephen's words are alive now. And they're going to be alive a hundred trillion billion light years from now because they stood for the truth. And so will yours as you stand for the truth in the kingdom of God. Look and go back to Jacob for a moment. He says, my son will not go down with you. Why is Jacob so obsessed with not letting that happen? When they already laid out the fact that this is what this great leader has said, we have to bring him back. And what we find here is Joseph is citing his distrust of his sons. Because the last time Jacob saw Joseph, he was going to be with his brothers, wasn't he? And so Jacob, perhaps in the back of his mind or maybe the forefront of his mind, saying, last time he was on a journey out there going to see you guys, here's what happened. And 
those boys maybe had lost some of the trust they should have had from their father. I want to park here for a moment because I want to speak to a lot of our young people because it's important. I want you to hear me. And whether you're young or older makes no difference. It's applicable to all, but particularly a generation that's growing up now. Listen, earn the trust of your parents, teachers, and leaders. Trust is very difficult to get and so easy to lose. Joseph should have been all right. Jacob should have been fine letting Joseph go to bring them some supplies and coming back safely. But those young men couldn't be trusted. And Jacob was told by Joseph before this ever happened that the boys were doing evil, that the brothers weren't doing right. Jacob was aware of that. And I believe in the back of his mind all along, Jacob had to wonder what really happened. How did all this take place? Earn that trust. You earn that trust, young people. When your parents are asking you to do something that is spiritual, something that is right, something that is good for you, that you carry it out and you do it. You see, reputation is how people know us. Character is how God knows you. And when you're doing the right things behind the scenes, Many times your parents find out or your leaders find out or your employers find out and they see the character of quality. More importantly, God sees it and he will raise you up, but that's got to be earned. You have a lot of trust that's inherently given to you by a parent because they love you. It can be lost. Don't punish your parents like that. Jacob suffered for years because that distrust issue existed in his life. Earn that by doing the right thing. Don't make parents have to ask you to get some things done that you know you need to get done. Don't put things into your body that your parents were so protective of to feed you right, make sure you're in a safe environment and put something in your body that one time, one time can cost you the rest of your life where you're a slave to something. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Earn that trust Don't think that you're smarter than your parents, your leaders, your employers. Maybe you have some better ideas about things, but think about this. Those people have been further up the hill, and no one outside of God loves you more than your parents. Earn that trust. Earn it from your teachers. Earn it from your leaders. Do the right thing. It's the Christian thing to do. Jacob says, you will bring my gray hairs down to the grave in sorrow. Don't make your parents go down to the grave in sorrow. Don't bring your family to that place, your friends to that place, your school to that place. Live a life where someone can stand on your shoulders. We live our lives for God. We give our lives for God. And sometimes that's just not easy. I've never propagated from this pulpit a health and wealth gospel. Life is tough Being a disciple means many times you're swimming against the tide. You're marching to the beat of a different drum, but that's part of the excitement. You see, we've lost the ability, I think, perhaps in Christianity, I know in lots of the world, to even take a risk anymore. Can't take a risk. Being a Christian means that you're a risk taker. And many times we will hear the friends that we have We want to earn their trust. We want to be friends with them. But they don't care about you like your parents do, like your family does, like your church does, 
like godly leaders do. They want you to succeed, not in the wrong way, but in the right way. Don't bring that upon family. Don't bring it upon parents. Let it be said of you. My children didn't bring me down to a place like that. They weren't perfect. No one is. But they didn't bring me to a place like that. Make decisions now, young person, even when you're sitting with your parents, to pray in your mind, God, may that never be me. I want my parents to not have to have that kind of sorrow. And God, foremost, I don't want to disappoint you. I want to do what is right. Young person, if you do that, you will have a life that is blessed. You will have a life that God will honor. It's important that you do that. Well, let's look and see what Genesis 43 verses 1 and 2 begin to say. It says, now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain, notice the word of God says all the grain that they had brought back from Egypt. Their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. It seems pretty innocuous in one sense, doesn't it? But we see a change in Jacob's heart because it comes to a, they're down to a life and death thing right now, aren't they? They're down to life and death. And when all is gone, when everything is finished and done, what are we left with? When you're down to your last scrap of bread, your last penny of your material, monetary resources, your last gasp of air, what's left? When all is gone, our faith has to and must look to God because he's the one that's the sustainer of our souls. And it's easy to forget when we're in the midst of issues and trouble that it's God. He is the one that sustains our souls. People have been tried for thousands of years with all kinds of circumstances. I want to tell a story that most of you are familiar with, but I want to add some further detail to it as a, well, because it's significant for today. Two people were married on September 5th, 1861. The Spaffords were, Horatio Spafford and Anna. They were married like most people, happily married. They bore children, four daughters. Life was going along as it should. He was a lawyer in Chicago and decided to make some investments in the city of Chicago. And the year that he made those investments, in the spring of 1871, having put a lot of resources into that, he didn't know that in October of 1871, there would be this great Chicago fire and basically lost all those investments, everything burned up. Well, that was a big defeat for that family. But of course, they kept getting back on their feet. In 1873, they decided they were going to take a family vacation, go to Europe. That time, steamers and ocean liners were beginning to cross the ocean. So they decided they would take that trip. And upon The days before that trip, when the family was getting ready to go, some business came up, some issues came up requiring actually zoning of properties from the fire. 
that required Horatio Spafford to stay in Chicago. But his family went on and got on their ship. You're going to see an actual photo. The actual ship, it's 421 feet long. It had been refitted with new engines in it, but that's the actual ship the family got on. 421 foot long ship to cross the ocean. When they got on that ship, little did they know that an iron sailing ship and this particular ship that we just showed you on the screen would collide. And in that collision on November 22nd, 1873, all four of those Spafford girls died. When they did collide, when those ships collided, the massive ocean liner that you saw sunk within less than 12 minutes. There was hardly any time to get lifeboats off. In fact, one of the masts that fell off that ship destroyed a lot of lifeboats. And some of the ones that they could get, they were trying to get off. The ship had been newly renovated and painted, and some of the lifeboats were sticking to the deck. But basically, after that ship almost split in two, think about it, less than 12 minutes from the time you're sitting on there. Actually, they were sleeping. It was 2 a.m. And being awoken with the smashing noise. And you have less than 12 minutes to try and get into a lifeboat, if you could even find one, before the days of electrical lights and flashlights and go and get on a a place to save your life. And so, as it's told through newspaper accounts and accounts in history, that 226 of those passengers died. Only 65 passengers and 26 crews survived that incredible maritime wreck. And up until the Titanic was known as the worst wreck there could be. It was the Titanic of that time, up to the time of the Titanic. Story is told that Anna Spafford was found on a board floating unconscious. She was retrieved out of the water by the very ship that hit them. And that ship was going to get ready to sink about 12 hours or less later. They were all rescued from that ship by an American ship that was nearby and took them on board and brought them the rest of the way to Europe. Mrs. Spafford wired back when she got there a telegram to her husband and said, saved alone, what shall I do? He boarded a ship to go be with his wife, all four children having died. It is told that when the ship he was had boarded to head overseas was passing over the spot that was marked with the latitude and longitude of this where the wreck was, that he began to pen the words of the song, it is well with my soul. I can't even begin to imagine the grief a family could feel with the loss of just one child. Nevertheless, all four of those precious girls, you can read about their names and they're real people. This happened. It just, I can't imagine. That's where that song comes out of. We've talked about it before in different messages. Terry's related to the story. 
But I wanted to give you a little bit more insight into that in the context of what we're talking about today. Because inside of that context, many people would say, what good can come from this? What can happen from this? Well, we've had multitudes of services in here and in worship centers around the world. Sometimes it's celebration of life services. Sometimes during a worship service where we just sing, it is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, we're familiar with it, but that's the context in which it comes out of. And we've seen a lot of sorrows like sea billows roll these last months, haven't we? We've seen a lot of heartbreaking things, a lot of hurtful things. God is in the midst. I want to read those correctly, and now you do too. We live our lives for God. We give our lives for God. And in that context, I pray that God blesses you in the midst of whatever you're going through now. Whether you're faced with perhaps a furlough or ultimate loss of job. Whether you're just suffering some depression and frustration for all that's taking place. Whether you're wondering about the future, remember, it's in those times when we plummet the depths of our soul that we're reminded, like Jacob, that he was ignorant and missing the fact that the very things he thought were against him were the things that were for him. The goal when we started this lockdown, everything was to reemerge stronger. And I pray you're continuing to reemerge stronger in your relationship to God, that it's growing stronger, that your faith, the darker it gets, the more you cling on to him and say, God, I'm not going to walk by sight. I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to trust in you and believe in you. And God, I'm going to believe if you can empower someone that's crossing over the very place where four of his daughters went to the bottom of the sea and can write as well with my soul, I pray that you too, in the midst of all this, can say, with me today, it is well with my soul. God bless you.